Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, managing editor for LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today, because of a very obscure event coming up later this week called the Oscars. What is that? Oh, I'll tell you about it later. Pretty minor award show. Okay. It <laughs> doesn't really mean anything to people who live in LA, but we're going to listen to a panel that LARB sponsored. And Medea was there. She can tell us about it. Yes, we had a panel at the beautiful Stella Adler Theater a couple of months ago, and it was a discussion on the state of cinema today. It was called the Film Now panel. It featured J.D. Connor, who is a film historian at USC, Gil Robertson, the president of the African American Film Critics Association, Justin Chang, the film critic at the Los Angeles Times, and Kathy Shulman, who is the president of Women in Film and herself a prominent producer. So it was a stellar lineup and a very, very interesting discussion about the current state of cinema. Oh, that sounds great. And it was moderated by Anna Sheckman, who's the Los Angeles Review of Books film editor. So we're going to go to her and to her introduction of the panel. Thank you so much for coming to Film Now, our roundtable on the state of the film industry and the films of 2016. I'm really excited to introduce our participants in this panel. We have, we'll start here with Professor J.D. Connor, who's a visiting associate professor in cinematic arts, is that right? At Cinema and Media Studies. Cinema and Media Studies, of course, at USC. He's also the author of Studios After the Studios, which I will just say is one of the most exciting books coming out of film studies right now about new Hollywood and contemporary film. We have Kathy Shulman, who is a producer whose credits this year include Bad Moms and The Edge of Seventeen, and she's also the president of Women in Film. Gil Robertson, who's the president of the African American Film Critics Association, and Justin Chang, who's the film critic at the LA Times. So I wanted to start and just give you each the opportunity to discuss the work that you do within these various disciplines. We have scholars, scholar, uh, producer, and <laughs> and two critics, and hoping to draw some connections between the priorities and preoccupations among these different fields. So Kathy, would you like to start us off and tell us a little bit about, especially about women in film, which is a very exciting organization. Sure. I'm a career executive and producer. I've been doing this since 1987, not to date myself. And also, I am the president of Women in Film, which is an organization based in Los Angeles with other sister organizations in London, New York, San Francisco, and five other cities. Women in Film is a leading organization supporting Women and Active for Change, the general mandate of the organization is to create 50-50 gender parity in Hollywood across all platforms, all opportunities, and all content. And yeah, we've been very, very active in sort of the last five years. We've become a very serious advocacy organization. Obviously, our issues are closely linked and always intersected with diversity in general. I'm Gil Robertson, president of the 
African American Film Critics Association. Basically, we're a body of film critics. We examine and review movies uh, throughout the year, not just black movies, but uh, cinema in general. Much like your organization, we have gravitated towards taking an advocacy role on a number of different issues you know, that impact the community, just to really move forward a dialogue about diversity and inclusion and the importance of that in cinema and television. Hello, everyone. I'm Justin Chang from Greg for the LA Times. I've uh, been here for about uh, eight months or so. I was previously, before that, I was at 12 years uh, as a critic at Variety. So it's been an interesting year kind of transitioning from uh, reviewing films for, for a trade publication to, to for the LA Times. And I'm also uh, chairman of the National Society of Film Critics and secretary of the LA Film Critics Association, both organizations which you don't really hear about until this time of year or awards season, uh, which I know will have lots of factor into our talk a great deal. So, so speaking for all of film studies, no. Yeah, please, <laughs> if you would. My film studies work tends to be about those structural, the relationship between structural determinants of things, that is how the industry is set up and where power flows within it and the particular projects that either reshape it or fail to reshape it. And so one of the things that I've been tracking, uh, let me put it a different way. Most academics work a little slow. We watch a movie when it comes out, we watch a movie when it comes out on DVD, it sits in the back of our heads for a year, maybe we get it together and we do a conference paper in that first year, a couple years later, it's showing up in print. And that's a fine rhythm, and one of the things that it does is it provides a sort of check on what is a job I certainly couldn't do that I deeply admire, which is the daily grind of, you saw the movie once, you've got copy in 24 hours. That said, my work is a little faster than maybe a typical academic, so not this summer, but last summer. We put together a conference back when I was at Yale on Mad Max, it was a conference that we held in September right as school got started, which that counted as really speedy in the academy. <laughs> and so these are muscles that academics don't flex a lot, and it's one of the things that I think I try to bring to the table a little bit, which is to say, if we know how things have been going, what does it mean right now? And one of the things I've been interested in in 2016 have been the ways in which things, uh, various exceptional cases from previous years now start to look more like patterns or more like a mode. One of the cases that I wrote about for LA Review of Books, I, they were kind enough to let me write about, was Dope. Um, Dope is obviously a small film and you can always, if you've got enough wealthy friends, get a small film together and these days it may be technologically easier to pull off. But it looked like a different kind of funding bank behind it. There was a lot of money from fashion, there was a lot of money from hip-hop, and now it started to look like you might be able to do that again. Well, it happened again this year, and so you got kicks, and then once you got enough success, then you get start to get indie versions of it that are more traditionally funded. And once you've got that, then it may be able to become a sort of genre-level film within the major studio system. So you were talking about tipping point moments. If I don't look past January 20th, I think 2016 had a lot of those kinds of moments where a set of institutional patterns started to emerge and that can be built upon. And so while I've been talking about dope and kicks, equity would be a parallel example for that. Again, kind of funded by everybody's friends, but now 
it can become not just a movie, but maybe a TV show, and then we'll see where that goes. And we were just talking a couple minutes ago about the fact that now that everything did change in this election directionally, you know, where are we headed? Will these patterns be able to start to lock in, or are we going to be facing a whole different kind of a future? You know, in the movie-making business, although we work really quickly every single day, it's a long process. It takes two to three years to get movies up and running, and so you're always in the questioning, you're always questioning what's going to be zeitgeist relevant a few years into the future, and right now we're really questioning that because, you know, traditionally in moments of divisiveness, if nothing other way to talk about it, and crisis, you know, we've had two different reactions from the standpoint of cinema. We've seen let's just entertain ourselves and have distraction. And then there have been other periods, our country and others, where it becomes, let's talk about the issue, what is really happening? And which way are artists going to go? And how do the business, how do the economics and the, the industry of film, how does it intersect with this process, which seemed to be going in a, a, a slow but slight liberal move with a slight, slight increase in diversity as, I wanted to say diversity as something that could be economically feasible. Now what, you know? You know, I think certainly we need to look at the role of technology and we need to look at the generational shift that's beginning, that's very happening right now. And how, what is it, next gen, or what's this generation's current generation? We're in the, the millennials. We're not an alphabet. Right, right. How they are consuming, you know, the content, which is very different from, you know, the traditional ways of enjoying entertainment content. And so how will that influence the big picture? Well, I just want to follow up on that a little bit with, with Kathy, because we've talked a little bit about new sort of streams of funding, but there's also new models for distribution, whether it's video on demand or streaming, and those are linked up sometimes, the yeah. where the money's coming from and also what the platform is that's going to be distributing it in terms of like Amazon Studios, for example. Do we see that really changing film production in ways that either increase the pace of production or is content being churned out more quickly? And is it also changing access? Who's getting to make films in ways that are either exciting for you or are you not so optimistic? Well, I think we've got goods and bads. Yeah. Um, I think some of the... Yeah. the <laughs> crookeds and straights. Crookeds and straights. Ups and downs, blacks and whites. I think that the main thing... Okay, here are things that are happening. Total shift in power players. That could be interesting. In other words, movement into digital streaming is so significant that maybe the big old clunky studios will be less and less relevant. Or not. We're going to have to talk about marketplace in a minute as regards to that. Okay, we know that we're seeing trends of increased opportunity, which by nature helps as it regards diversity Mm. because it's easier and less expensive. There's actually increased economics for the players themselves. In other words, good business for companies like Hulu and Amazon and Mm -hmm. Netflix and others you mentioned. And there's even good business for investors and financiers because the decrease in marketing costs creates an increase in income. However, (laughs) what artists? Let's look at artists for a minute. Writers, directors, actors. Huge decrease in economics. Less so for actors, but heavily hit producers and writers and directors, okay? Mm -hmm. So what that really means is if you're, Netflix may still pay, not market value, frankly, Mm -hmm. but pay for an actor and pay significantly, and we could get into a whole argument about how much actors should be paid anyway, and if it's a lot of overblown anyway, but 
maybe not so much writers, directors, and producers, and there's a different and a huge difference. There's no back end. Yeah. In other words, there's like a little piece of the licensing fee, if anything. And if that feels confusing to anybody, the difference is that in the movie business, as the movie continues to make money and through its whole stream of ancillary release release the revenues, so do the profit participants, which will be those key players. That doesn't happen in this other place, which could be then a negative in terms of art. Because when you can't employ yourself as an artist, you know, you start to stop doing it. You know, certainly from a technological standpoint, obviously a lot of people are railing, and fairly so, that we have these beautiful ways to make movies that look incredible on big screens. And we've taken so much time to evolve all these techniques. And of course, you can't see any of it on small things, so why use it? And will that affect how technology moves forward? That could also be a negative for that part of the industry. You know, so I guess the answer is, overall, on a daily basis, I feel excited about it because I keep selling things and getting my movies made. <laughs> so it's exciting because it's like, okay, you guys all want to make a lot of stuff and you're not even that discerning and you kind of leave us alone. So it's kind of not so bad. But I can also see that the companies that have the marketing abilities and that could bring things out are not necessarily getting that content nor do they want it, and now it's a bad combination. In other words, if you're a studio and you said, all I'm gonna do is serialize franchises for middle-aged white people and some boys, you know, like, are you gonna shift <laughs> what you're gonna do when Netflix and Hulu and Amazon can do all of it? You know, so I don't know. Like, you yeah, see, I totally want to people's opinion, but I just wanted to, she asked me to sort of set the stage and then yeah. we should discuss it. Yeah, Justin, I was wondering if sure. there are certain films that come to mind for me that seem perhaps like they, I mean, they were made for Netflix in this case, whether it's Ava DuVernay's Thirteenth or Divine, a, a great film coming out of yeah, a great film coming out of France by Huda Benyamina. Do these films seem to you either markedly different from films that would be released in theaters, or do they seem essentially tied to the economic base of Netflix in some way? I don't think that they're markedly different. I mean, I want to kind of throw in Amazon as well. Yeah, I'm yeah. speaking to that, which I mean, this has been kind of such a big coming out year for them. Where I kind of am observing, you know, like going to film festivals uh, like Sundance and Cannes in particular, which is always kind of an interesting way to kind of get taking the pulse of the industry. And, you know, it's kind of a collision of the studios and the non studio players. You know, Amazon had, uh, they, they bought Manchester by the Sea, for example, which, you know, turned out to be, you know, paid off very handsomely and still paying off for them. Woody Allen, I think, worked with, you know, Amazon for the first time, with Cafe Society, Jim Jarmish had two films. So, I think in some ways they're sort of taking place, not, not taking place, but it's not like they're eclipsing you know, the, the Sony classics and the searchlights of the world. I mean, it's interesting too, also going back to Sundance, Earth of a Nation, that film kind of, I believe was, there was like a bidding war between Fox Searchlight and Amazon, and don't quote me on this. No, you're right. much, it was, by the way, I could have gone either way, and it ended up going to Fox Searchlight. Well, I was going to say, yeah. I just intersect by saying that, that interestingly enough, and I remember it so well because I happened to be roommating at Sundance last year with the president of TriStar. And um, <laughs> TriStar, you know, was the first and major bidder on Manchester by the Sea and set a price tag so high, actually it was the highest I'd ever seen at Sundance. I used to work there, by the way, and program the festival. And it's changed over the years so much. And got beat, and got beat by a digital streaming, you know, outlet. And it was so shocking when the kind of marketing money that could have been put in, and I remember them thinking, like, that's never, by the way, studios don't buy movies at Sundance to begin with, not, not major divisions like that. And that happened, and then two days later, you get a, you get a bidding war between Fox Searchlight and um, Netflix. Yeah. It was a variety of times, so a slightly more privy to kind of the, the, the behind the scenes machinations than I usually am. 
And it was, and I think in the end, you know, the, the filmmakers on Birth of a Nation ended up going with Fox Searchlight, thinking it would do a more traditional kind of last campaign. Yeah, the allure of that kind of imploded a little bit yeah. in the wake of the embattled state of that film, but, uh, you know. Um, well, that was interesting, you know, weirdly enough, although I take no credit for it at this point, I bought Birth of a Nation for Mandalay when I was still there as president of that. It's the last movie I bought there and then the script and I, and then moved on in my career. But yeah, I mean, it was a movie that the industry said couldn't get made because of 12 Years of Slave. So it had, there, everybody said it was already done. And then look what happened, you know? I mean, sad about the controversy, not sad as my point of view, but sad that controversy had to take the moment, you know, away, but, but yeah. But also so. sad that mindset that we can only have one movie about. That's right, and I wanted to point that out. That So we, I was like, oh, well, we're not gonna get, I guess we're not getting this one made. And then sure enough, the next, executive there, you know, did, right. which was great, and yeah, it is true, like, that it was, it was, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in terms of opportunity, which is what you asked for, look at how opportunity opens when buyers, you know, expand. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood, and now back to our panel, Film Now moderated by Anna Sheckman and featuring J.D. Connor, Gil Robertson, Justin Chang, and Kathy Stolman. But also there was there's a broader discourse about 2016 starts with Birth of a Nation winning Sundance and Oscar So White at the same time. Right. And one of the very you know, sort of consoling things for an Academy member who had been to Sundance had to be knowing that Birth of a Nation was coming, that that was going to be a year later, at least one answer to Oscar So White. And so they had pre-gamed, in effect, their, not getting off the hook, but slight, you know, look, things did get better. And then Birth of a Nation has its collapse or, or possible resuscitation. And fortunately for that discourse, for that part of the Academy, Moonlight comes along and can occupy that same space. And that's a really important moment, not because there should be a trade-off between two movies, but because there's enough quality work out there that if you... Well, and not to mention and, Hidden and, Figures comes in on the box office side. Right. Absolutely. Ooh, right. Hit, you know, and so that's a nice... That's a nice sort of self-care too. Yes, right. So yeah. one of the when you were talking about temporality and the timeline and having to predict a couple of years out, at least one of the things that folks are good at is knowing that by what they see at Sundance means something a year later and so on. And I think part of what's happened is that as the major players have announced vast slates going out, you know, five, ten years. Those huge slates take what was the usual process of it takes three years to make a movie or longer that was behind the scenes, puts it out there for all of us, and now you can say, wait a minute, you've got 10 movies in 10 years and none has a woman director? You've got 10 movies in 10 years and none has an African-American hero? Like those kinds of things have opened a channel for critique because now this behind the scenes has become sort of out there. So the delay can actually serve a lot of these same kinds of purposes. The flip side of that is that now we can make, we, I don't do these things. <laughs> one can make last, yeah, one can make fairly last minute changes. I don't know the details of the Rogue One changes 
But if you're digitally distributing, even at that highest point in the, you know, in the, in the budget tiering, if you can change a scene, then yes, you need to get into the zeitgeist a couple years down the road. But if it turns out that there's a Muslim registry and you have a way to put that into a movie in order to take advantage of that, you can do that fairly quickly, late in the process. I don't you mean, could. I mean, I think it's going to fall more to the indies. I mean, let's, yeah, let's, of course. Let's, let's, let's enter the indies into the conversation. And I just I wanted to bring a couple of facts because they're interesting, I think, that Okay, so 2016, the top grocers collectively, as everyone probably knows, made $11 billion. Independent films, there were a thousand, actually it's a couple more, but let's just call it a thousand for math. There were a thousand independent films last year. They made $550 million. So that's exactly 5% of 11 billion. Okay, so we got all that. So we have an interesting situation. <coughs> from a standpoint of an overall like production, like let's take a pie, you know, we've, we, we've traditionally sort of been that in terms of production activity, the studios do about 25% of the activity and the indies do about 75, which may even surprise people because everyone thinks the studios make most of the movies. They make most of the money, but not most of the movies. It's sort of the converse has always been true, it has over the last few years been true that 75% of the money, you know, is made by the studios. But now it's actually interesting, even more, we've slid even, so now we're above 75% of the production is through the indies. And we're, although it's not fully calculated yet this year, but we're probably going to see way less than 25, you know, in other words, the studios will have done less than 25% of the business, but we're going down in terms of the economics. But the focus of the studios is becoming increasingly more on the tentpoles. That's, well, yeah, and, and frankly, it's even beyond tentpoles. We used to say tentpoles, which meant just a small, small differentiator. Tentpole was, it's going to make all of it, it's a huge movie, we, use, we, we only make a few a year, and it's going to make an enormous amount of money, especially on its opening weekend. Now we're talking about franchises which is a different business, it's a serial business, it's more like TV, a character keeps on going, and that's why we can predict out this yeah. many years, because we're doing what television did traditionally that doesn't do now, which is, we're saying, here's the character, we're gonna keep giving you episodes, and why is that done? Because the market, the eyeballs, you know, in order to get to the eyeballs, marketing, when you're marketing to people who already know what they're coming to see, it's way less expensive and way easier to get them. But what was interesting but this the, year was... Well, you know, I start to reject it. Right. I knew, yeah, so go. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I just wanted to get that, that. That was my last point. A perfect example is Jason Bourne. Exactly. You know, which uh, Universal must have been disappointed with the final tally there. But I believe there were a couple of well, other this was also this was also the year of the kind of the, the weird, weirdly long delayed sequel. You know, yeah. we had like Finding Dory, but Independence kind of, Day, Independence Day, Day wasn't yeah. really there. You know, in terms yeah. of the audience participation, what do you think they wanted what they wanted 10, 15 years ago? Which is why the conversation has to become: what do they? How do we show the studios what they really want? But, That's really what it is. But there's a flip side to that. I mean, like if you go back to July, I'm much more sanguine about the state of film in. December and January, because all the good movies come out. But if you go back to July, not only are there all these sequel fatigue movies, but that's when World of Warcraft comes out. And every summer I teach a course on flops, and <laughs> World of Warcraft is a movie that doesn't do enough business here in the US. It has stars who are TV stars, but not yet movie stars, and it pays exceptionally handsomely because it is an enormous hit in China. So, 
asking what do they want actually starts to pluralize this audience question in ways where if you look at that top 10 global box office from last year for the first time you see the mermaid which is a chinese film that does basically zero business in the u.s and all of its business there and this is going to be at the very highest levels in that you know top 20 movies this is going to be a big shift going forward are there going to be franchises that connect better both in the US and Europe and China, or are we going to end up with movies like Mermaid, or there's a bunch of kind of knockoff Indiana Jones series kicking around in China on the one hand, and the Star Wars universe for those of us who you know who live here and have grown up with that. Well, what about the Chinese downturn that we just it just happened. Yeah, so China's, yeah, China's complicated, as, yeah. as everybody knows. They're trying to figure this out. And we all so, thought it was all about Chinese verses, and, now, and it may be. It may be. Except now they just flip-flopped. And they, at some point they're going to re- eliminate their quota, the number of films that go through. Well, if they want to stay in the yeah. WTO, they're supposed to. At some point, maybe some tra- uh, accounting will have to actually be transparent. I've had one conversation with Zack Snyder in my life, and he decided to explain in detail uh, to my great edification how the money wasn't getting out of China and uh, that was lovely but it's there and it's being plowed back into production did so the these mermaid are have a companies. US distributor what mermaid mermaid yeah yes. yeah it did yeah, it was like a platform. Like they didn't even. It was for such a ginormous hit. It did yeah. pretty well here for, yeah. for, 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 for an Asian, yeah. for an Asian right. film but, released yeah. like an Asian film. But it's not doing. But that that movie did not do business the way that say movies that are distributed by Eros or these other Indian distributors do. Yeah. You know, if you spend some time with the weekly box office, that number nine, number ten film is very frequently a Bollywood film yeah. uh, these yeah. days, and you know they're pulling in low, you know, high single-digit millions in their American run. So it hasn't quite caught that fire yet, but it will. I but think. it's going in the right direction. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we are yeah. seeing that trend go up, not down. We've yeah. been talking a lot about how the sort of diffuse something that once was Hollywood uh, has become, whether it has to do with exactly are we talking about the studios, what is what are the role of the studios, it's award season, is Hollywood just a sort of self-congratulation machine? It's a sort of abstract question, but and I, I know JD is, is sort of primed to answer this, but is, is there, well, well what, what is Hollywood right now? Is there, um, does anyone have a, a particularly creative answer to that question? It's an adolescent, you know, back to its adolescence. And I very much like Meryl Streep's description of it as just a bunch of people from different places. Mm-hmm. Mm. The, it's the ideal, the optimistic kind of vision of it. When you say Hollywood, do you mean the studio system or do you mean the people that are making movies? I suppose that that's that's a question. I mean, do you do you think of Hollywood as the studio system as someone who's in the trenches? I think what Meryl said when she said that that statement meant everybody that wants to be creatives are people from everywhere. And I think, unfortunately, that's a bit of a separation from what the studios are, which is, you know, certainly in terms of the work at Women in Film, and we're dealing. I mean, some of you may have read Martha Lausen's. San Diego study that San Diego State study that came out two days ago, and you know, for anyone who doesn't follow that, she's looking at participation of women and gender parity, and started her research in 1998. Women in film has done a ton of additional research and different kinds of things, but just speaking about her studies since it's so recent, you know, we are we have never increased the amount of women involved in the top 250 films, which has a large amount 
when I say the top 250, I mean the top 250 box office films. I'm not talking critically. You know, that's traditionally involves a number, all the studio movies will sort of fall, not all, but almost all of them will fall into that number. And what we see is that we don't have movement from 1998 to today in terms of these top gatekeeping positions, writers, directors, producers, and frankly, we're having the same issues with executives. But there was, and, and this happens all the time, and, and we were so sad, yes, two days ago, all, all women, people that are working for, you know, the, particularly for the, for the female cause here were so endlessly disheartened, but there are two things that I thought were important to yeah. point out. One is that we can't see, that we've had an upturn that we can't see yet when you count, because it's still coming, and I, th I believe in that. But also, and most importantly, we had asked her at Women in Film, to please try to do one thing differently this year, and she did, and that was to look at all of the films, and when there are women in gatekeeping positions, what happens on the mm -hmm. films in terms of the overall staffing, which, let me just take a detour to say, generally when, women's, when movies are staffed with women, content shifts to be inclusive of women. Mm -hmm. And we actually see the same as it regards when women involve diversity in general, but, but, but what she measured, where when there were female directors, when they're involved, she did see that on a case-by-case -case basis, there was a huge increase of how the overall makeup of the filmmaking team, I think it was 69%, whereas when they're not, it's below, it's in the low 40s at best, and most, most of the time below. So we do know that if we could start to change the studios and change the sort of power finance sources mm -hmm. by including women around the decision-making tables, we could make a shift that increases the amount of women working. And I'm gonna make the leap to say the same will be true with diversity because we're seeing it, but we don't have the numbers to prove it. For me and my, my process this time of year-end list making and kind of yes. you know, awards, mm -hmm. these, these kinds of things, it's a really good way to kind of, you know, some of my favorite films this year, Tony Erdman, directed by a woman director, writer-director, Marinade, um, American Honey, directed by Andrea Arnold, 13, Fabio DuVernay, uh, the Edge of Seventeen. Sorry, next I just wanted to no, throw out a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the only woman to get a nomination, a nomination this year. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. 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 Best first film in your film circle. It, it, a wonderful film. And so, and, and yet part of me is I'm kind of cataloging these things. I'm thinking like, am I? Can I catalog these as Hollywood? You know, sometimes yeah. I think we're yeah. on the critical yeah. side. Yeah. I often tend to, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe wrongly to, to kind of compartmentalize things. Okay, this is Hollywood, and these are specialty. Indie foreign. foreign. I think that female filmmakers are thriving in, on that in that sphere in a way that they are. They don't look like they are. I hope you know what you said as far as you know. Yeah, the numbers aren't. We have all sorts of pipeline issues, you know, that we have to address in order to increase. Which I can get to what's going on with women in general. I could put into like a minute at some point. But yes, you know, we're, we're starting to see some thriving examples and good support for them. We need more. You know, television is really leading the way. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ava DuVernay, and obviously, you know, with her show Queen Sugar, yeah. you know, this year she employed exclusively oh. women, you know, with direct. As a mandate. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully that's an example of the success of the show. You know, it performed well for all. Um, you know, that's something that we'll see the studios copy. Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now back to our panel, Film Now, moderated by Anna Sheckman and featuring J.D. Connor, Gil Robertson, Justin Chang, and Kathy Schulman.
think that you're going to get, because of the TV bubble that we're in, where there are just, I'm going to say it, too many scripted shows, the thing that's that, one of the things that's allowed performers and other key talent members to do is to maintain a, 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 a place in the public eye. I mean, even Mahershala Ali, Luke Cage is doing some of that backstopping. Mm -hmm. It's putting him out there, it's giving him a day job, uh, it's a great role. Uh, so that, I mean, if you know, it's not yet a one for them, one for me town for people who are on the edges of it. But if you have enough TV work, it, that can be your one for them. Right. And then you can do a Moonlight. He's had an amazing year. Yeah, yeah. no, he's had an amazing year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm he's sort been of everywhere, yeah. But to get back to that question about what Hollywood is, I mean, there's this industry split between major and minor, and then there's these thriving things that look like they're thriving at the edges. And while I'm as sanguine about the state of film as anybody, I want to say that actually it's not, there isn't a difference at one level. And that level is that right now, in the wake of the Great Recession, where huge amounts of money from state, uh, you know, basically state funders, sovereign wealth funds, came into backstop production. And that was combined with this global system of tax rebates and credits that's now really fairly extensive. Everybody, whether you're making a teeny tiny little movie or a gigantoid movie, is doing it based on that same, what is the new model of international global capitalism. And that model allows you at some point to find places to make movies that you couldn't have made otherwise. You know, maybe Imagination Abu Dhabi is like got taste and they just want to underwrite good things and you find ways for players like Participant or A24 to come in. But it's also the same process that allows Jolo to steal more or less a billion dollars from a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund and underwrite um, you know, the Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, Street, which is, I mean, assuming that the Department of Justice complaint mm -hmm. and allegations are true, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> That's the system. The system is not different. In other words, you have to be absolutely sophisticated about the global process of capital allocation. And I know nobody enjoys those endless pre-credits where it's like this presents with the help of this, with the help of that, and then you stay to the end and there's all the listing of various state actors. Yeah, the Indies are hustling for $100,000 from the Belgian government and $50,000 for the Musicians Union in the Czech Republic. But that's, but that's not, yeah, but yeah. that's not very different from what Marvel, you know, the Marvel yeah, slate is doing in North Carolina. I know people complain, and like it, I always say, like every time I see another, you know, logo come up, I'm like, thank God. Like, I mean, it should. <laughs> the point being, like, each one of those logos means somebody leaned in with that money, you know, and and right. and these are opportunities. But the fact that we have to do it the way that we're doing it and band-aid it the way we're band-aiding is 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 really really tricky. We have to wrap up soon, but I have a final question that makes me a bit of a hypocrite because at, uh, as film editor at the LA Review of Books, we, every piece that's come in since uh, early November has tried to end with a paragraph that sort of relates the film or the state of film or film going to the election in some, in some way, often in a quite uh, banal or self-indulgent way, and so I try to rein it back, <laughs> rein, it back <laughs> rein it in, but uh, having said that, I'm, I'm uh, full disclosure, this is the Trump question. Um, 
And I wonder uh, if Hollywood, as we've sort of variously defined it, or um, the film industry, is guilty of some of the charges that have been levied either legitimately or not so legitimately against the media writ large. Um, which is to say, is it guilty of sort of balkanizing culture into discrete bubbles targeted at specific demographics that doesn't really help unite something like the United States of America? Uh, or is it guilty of privileging something like cultural diversity or identity politics over class consciousness? So just some of the charges that have um, been levied against the media and can we talk about them as they relate to film production? You know, I think that that's become a cost-effective way of you know, getting the word out on a project, you know, the sort of segmentation that you have going on with entertainment content. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that I'm saying that it's a good thing, but I think that it's been very effective in helping, you know, production entities to meet their bottom line. You mean like targeting demographics? Mm -hmm. But there's a fairly robust strand of, I don't want to call it the Trump electorate filmmaking, but Patriot's Day, um, you know, Deep, Deep Water Horizon, uh, these, you know, Jeff, the Peterberg Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I mean, I don't think those movies are going to end up being like the Jimmy Stewart, Anthony Mann westerns, like critically going on, but they can market in that certain way. So I do yeah. think there's a kind of bubbling going on there, but that's okay in some ways because there aren't a lot of audiences in other zones of the world who want to see that story making. Yeah. Well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think also to, there's two ways to look at it. There's sort of the output and then there's the ingoing, you know, and yeah. what we do know is that we have enormous bias issues within the studio system. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they tend to align with the, let me be careful. <laughs> this is a really hard question because we know that all those, everybody on Facebook is, yeah. <laughs> no, we're not kidding. I'm hoping for a Trump tweet in response. Yeah. That'll put us on the map. What I mean to say is whether, who knows who voted for who, but the groups of people running the studios and how they're making decisions and what decision making tables look like aren't too dissimilar. Um, and so we have this enormous chore to do in terms of removing what's now become commonly called unconscious bias in, in Hollywood. And by the way, women in film is very responsible for introducing that term to Hollywood. Um, but I have some regrets because it seems to make everybody feel like there's not actual bias. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, we were trying to like ease in the conversation. Um, but the fact is we've got bias and unconscious bias operating at such a large level that you know, we have all this work to do to change the cultures of those people in Hollywood who can, in fact, here's what it comes down to. Who can make the decision about which content to finance? Mm -hmm. You know, Hidden but, Figures provides a great example of a show yeah. that initially was, you know, made exclusively to target the market to yeah. women. Yeah. And as we've seen from last week, and it was the number one film in the country, yeah. you know, it broke through and it's attracting, you know, uh, mainstream audiences. I was with uh, uh, someone yesterday who's not African-American who took her daughter, you know, to go and see it. So that's, you know... Um, well, why does everyone sound so shocked? Like, you know, <laughs> like, what I'm so sick of is everybody was like, can you believe it? It happened again. And I'm like, it keeps happening. Why can't right. this stop looking like yeah. such an exception to everybody? I mean, of course it works. It's got giant stars and amazingly 
good story with a right. feel-good ending. It's all the things we always look for in Hollywood movies. It's just amazing that we still have to look at it as such an exception. And it's a valedictory, if anything, to the Obama era. It really right? is. Like it's it, like a crowning jewel in a way. It, yeah. Which speaks to, I mean, you know, the, and I think it was your organization, you know, that the African American Film Critics Association would put out that thing that uh, this is the best year ever for black right, right. You know, and I think this is all kind of speaking of timing and the fact that you know, we're hopefully still seeing the fruits of the Obama era. And so perhaps it will take yeah. you know, uh, the, you know, it'll take a while before we see the fruits, if that's the word. Of the, of the, yeah, and my biggest fear is that people in this country, decision makers and, and, and media, as well as everybody else, will think it's okay to be a jerk. You know, and it's like, I mean, if, 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 if you don't have to, I just hope, I mean, I'm speaking emotionally, that it's not like, well, now we can act like the government and just be idiotic and biased and not even grow. It, it, it's, it's interesting to kind of... Call Meryl Streep a hack or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Your question about, you know, is there's that question people say that Hollywood is too culturally conscious, and I think we're just getting started. Like, you know, it's oh, we're not. Like, I mean, we're not even anywhere. We like to say we are, so, but yeah, we, yeah. We, don't, we don't walk and talk and spend in the same direction. Yeah. That's not true, you know. So, you know, we just like to say we have a lot of work, you know, all of us. Okay, I'm gonna try to do it in a minute. <laughs> I'm gonna wrap up eight years in a minute. Let me make a long story short and just say that we, and very much a partnership with our friends at the Sundance Institute, spent a number of years for collecting numbers and, and data. The reason we did that was to identify the fallout points for women from entering into the American film festival circuit through making their third film. And by the way, we lost our control group after one, their first film because 50% fall out right there, okay? But we took, that was the landscape we studied. And based on everything that we learned and over 90,000 data points and an enormous amount of work, all of which frankly was done by professionals, not by us and mostly led by the Annenberg School, Stacey Smith. We were able to identify these fallout points. So then we had to study them, which we spent the next year and a half doing. And what we were able to identify is that there's essentially a triangle of problems affecting women. And although there are many, many, many details to each side of the triangle, I'll just, to finish up my minute, explain what those three sides are. Which is one side of the triangle, we have an enormous pipeline issue. We've got problems not going into schools and filmmaking and graduate schools, but coming out already. So something's happening in those walls. And then all the way through. On the other side of the triangle, we have this enormous cultural bias issue going on with decision makers and content creators. And frankly, if it was a, if it doesn't even really meet as a triangle because that side's so big, it would actually like it would not hang together as a triangle. But that's the second problem. At the bottom, and most important to Hollywood, is the business case scenario, the economics, which operates in a number of different levels. A, there's a whole issue of the culture believing that women in charge don't make money and that content for women and girls doesn't make money. But on the other side of things is, well, does it? And we don't really know, we're still studying all that because although we can point to certain examples, we haven't, there hasn't been one comparative analysis that takes algorithmically, that takes in enough of the variables to really understand if you compare an apple to an apple, what it really means. We're doing that now. We've received a lot of support and thank God it's a very expensive study and involves econometricians and social scientists and et cetera, et cetera, and we're trying to address that. But what we do know is that if we don't address these three sides of the triangle simultaneously, they, they start to fall apart and the angles don't hold solid. So the places where the problems exist are also the places where the cures have to be focused. 
And so what we're trying to do as an organization and what we all need to do wherever is, is come up with programmatic ways to address the three sides. And that is if the government doesn't also come involved, get involved with KMA. Mm -hmm. And we're obviously in the middle of a big EEOC investigation into this industry right now, which may be helpful. You know, I'm not a great believer that you can, you know, kind of regulate change in art. <coughs> On the other hand, if it's true and they find it, it's probably a helpful side of it. You know, equation, but I think I went over my one minute to say that's what we're seeing and that's what we're trying to address. The social networks uh, in the industry are pretty horizontal and it's not six degrees, it's two. Uh, and everybody who makes it can say it was just one or two things, and everybody who misses it can say it was just one or two things. The truth of the matter is that it's, you know, Hollywood is a, is a place that has always churned out vast amounts of people on the losing end of whatever structure it's articulated. And it's always been, you know, really since the 30s, uh, well, the 40s, at the forefront of the casualization of labor, run of show kinds of employment. The difference was that it was also, because it was super unionized, it had a backstop to hold it. It doesn't have that on the indie side now, so it feels a lot like the rest of the economy. It's going to be a scramble. There's not a solution to that scramble that's going to come out of the, the institution itself. It's going to have to be culture-wide. Um, if you could imagine a shift in the patterns of unionization in the United States, then you can imagine you know, that that scramble actually is worth pursuing. But otherwise, you know, it's going to look a lot like it does now, where you know, I had a great credit, and now I'm you know, not, and the joke is that you're a barista, but I don't think even that's where the fallout is. People just leave and they go somewhere else. Well, the fallout's caused mostly by the fact that you can't make an art, you can't make a living. I mean, for women, the gap between movies is between five and seven years. Um, that's really hard. For, for, for men, it's between one and three years, which is also hard. Anything doing once a year is hard. But one to three is maybe more manageable than, than theirs. But these gaps are so enormous that it pushes people out. Um, I wish I had the diversity, and I, I don't know the gaps, but like exactly. But look at that—you know—that push out is really like, what do we do? And one of the things we like to think about is how do we support the people who've already done something interesting? We have so much—we're good at supporting like incoming, and it creates like you asked in your question. It's like lot of incoming sort of talent and ideas and ways to do things like really small and indie and then we don't know what to do with everybody and they're all falling out all over the place somehow so yeah this is a whole issue you know i'm caught this year I, I liked a couple of the films i um you know while i was watching it arrival nocturnal animals deadpool and moonlight oh sorry <laughs> moonlight Lion. Oh, that too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't even, yeah. Uh, Moonlight, Lion, uh, Hidden Figures, uh, Vences. Um, and that's good too. Yeah. Um, I love Moonlight, but my favorite, favorite most film of the year was Silence, uh, which just went live this weekend. You should go mm -hmm. see it if you haven't. Uh, and I, I think as much for just, I think it's, you know, the most profound statement of religious belief and religious questioning from a major filmmaker in a very long time, uh, probably since The Tree of Life. Um, and uh, also, for, in, in terms of this discussion, kind of what it represents is sort of this anomaly, this, you know, 28-year passion project by Mark mm -hmm. Scorsese that he had devil of the time getting financed, shot 
25 million stone. Uh, it recreated these Japanese villages in, in Taiwan where it was produced. Um, it is kind of like nothing out there right now, and I think it's it may be too early to call it a masterpiece, but I think it's go see. Um, I'm going to cheat two ways. Uh, so Damien Chazelle was a student of mine a long time ago, and uh, I had just more fun watching a student make good watching that movie at the Cinerama Dome than I would have had anywhere else. So uh, I'll say La La Land for that reason. I'm not going to rank him above or below anybody. That was just a different thing. And then. Uh, the greatest trailer of uh, 2016 was the office, the first office Christmas party trailer. Um, that was that was a trailer that was so good that I didn't care whether the movie was any good at all. I wanted to give them my money because they had done that, and the whole family went. And we we enjoyed it sufficiently, but like. I, I think that trailers don't get uh, don't get enough shout outs in all of this. Well, and they get an award. They, yeah. Yeah, they, they do. Award. They get, they, they they get it. the key art in the golden trailer. So I'll cheat that way too. And I have to include Edge of 17 go see that because it kind of didn't have a big release. But it's really, it's, I, and I'm totally in self interest except to say that I think it's such an interesting portrait of what it means to be a teenager um, that we haven't seen that kind of thing since John Hughes. I really, really think, and I'm talking about the filmmaker, not myself, but really an interesting. Mm. Yeah. And the writing is just yes. Yeah, she's amazing. Great. I guess I'd say my favorite film of the year is probably L, and just Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Really good movie. Uh, and to just keep uh, keep with the self promotion that I've been uh, running with all day. Um, the LA Review of Books. We have a radio hour coming up where um, Medea, our uh, managing editor, and I we talked about our favorite foreign films of the year. And I do my best Zizekian reading of L. Um, it's really impolitic and stupid, and so it's you know perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you all so much, and thank you to our, our participants. Thank you. And that's our show for today. You've been listening to the panel Film Now with Anna Sheckman, film editor at Los Angeles Review of Books, J.D. Connor, Gil Robertson, Justin Chang, and Kathy Schulman. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleana, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 